These next two episodes are my attempt, off the cuff at times, to synthesize the genealogy that many, many others have done. Looking into the work that's been done and is being done has inspired my own journey. That being said, I'm going to come down here on the side of the sluice. There are prominent volumes of genealogy that, while not discarded, will be de-emphasized for research that continues to this very moment. The internet is often a harrowing and draining place, but it's also a place for collaboration, and I feel that being interested in Lewis and Clark's wider journey, one must see the value in working together to achieve a goal. I'm sure I'll get some of the things wrong in Lewis, Merriweather, Clark, and Rogers' lines, so consider this a teaser for future exploration on your own. Welcome to Expeditions, a podcast around Lewis and Clark, where we explore the history and historiography of the expedition one day at a time. This is the start of Mile Marker 4, episode I Show No Ill, The Lewises and the Merryweathers. We'll begin with the Lewises. My first source of misconception was that there were so many Lewises, and connections between Lewises are still contentious to this day. Because our scope is narrow, we'll try to avoid the sheer truism that, deep enough, we're all connected. In this vein, I'm thinking of pioneer John Lewis, who emigrated from Ireland in 1720, well after our purposes. We'll meet his sons Andrew and Charles when we go down the Ohio, but as far as I can piece together, they are unrelated in a narrow sense. To that end, trying to connect pioneer John Lewis to Meriwether is doable. Our Meriwether Lewis's maternal aunt Mary married a Peachy Gilmore. Side note, bring back the name Peachy, right? She gave birth to Thomas, who married Elizabeth Lewis, daughter of Thomas Lewis, son of Pioneer John. Did you catch all of that? If not, it'll never come up again. Julia Fenster relates an 1881 magazine article on the Lewises that notes, quote, the love of ancient ancestry is said to be laughably displayed by the Lewis family of England, who are said to have in their possession a picture of the ark with Noah emerging from it, bearing a large trunk labeled papers belonging to the Lewis family. But those papers aren't guaranteed to be accurate, the trunk untampered. Yet even dead ends lead to interesting routes for exploration. One of the first dead ends outside pioneer John Lewis is a Robert Lewis II. Marrow Egerton Sorley, whose Lewis of Warner Hall, The History of a Family from 1935, felt that it could be, quote, asserted without fear of contradiction that the emigrant Lewis who went to Virginia was a member of some branch of the Lewis family of Brecon, end quote. While the Welsh origins were spot on, the Robert Lewis who sailed from London aboard the Blessing in 1635 didn't make it to Virginia, but instead New England, where he lived and where he died. There's no evidence that he made it to Virginia, nor to the family traditions of his land grants and the rank of general. This Robert Lewis isn't the American link to Meriwether Lewis. The more I rooted around in the genealogy, the more I came to realize that so much of what we understand about our families is based upon secondhand sources written decades, if not nearly a century ago. And there is a cottage industry of, quote, personalized genealogies with vested interests in connecting you to George Washington, Charlemagne, Jesus Christ, or Noah and his ark, as it were. Today, computers can accomplish this easily, and print-on-demand outfits will send it right to your door. While the technology is new, the impulse is 
quite old. I've never heard of Gustave Anjou before I started this research. He was a man who, in the early 20th century, produced false and outright fraudulent genealogies of early Americans to bolster their descents in an increasingly stratified and class-conscious era. Littered across Wikitree are warnings about the work affecting certain individuals, and over time, that information, knowing and unknowing, finds its way across the decades into the lovely gift that you bought for your grandma's 80th birthday. The premise of these fake histories is that there's something shameful about being ordinary, that without a connection to the great men of history, what exactly is your worth? So Robert Lewis exists to serve a purpose. We'll see this theme throughout our journey. Robert Lewis is a call to further research, a further examination of the lives of those who are, every day, getting further and further from our grasp. But he's also a symbol of the kind of stories that we want to tell. Setting aside Robert, our pioneer Lewis was a John, but not that John. Our John was born in Monmouthshire, Wales, circa 1594. Two dates of emigration are given, 1636, probably where some of the Robert confusion comes from, or 1652. Either way, it appears he traveled from Wales to Porapatink Creek in Virginia with his sons, John Lewis Jr. and Edward. Also along was Major William Lewis, who wasn't his son, but was family, a nephew, a brother-in-law, perhaps there is a Robert connected to William that we haven't sourced yet, and also along was a Lydia, who may have been John's wife, his first wife, his second wife, or the wife of his sons, or Williams, or his daughter, really any, any guess um, will, will do. As an early Virginia settler, his life is mysterious, and we could piece it together from other sources about what other settlers were doing at the time. In 1948, his grave was discovered by Dr. Malcolm Harris. The tombstone, the oldest known tombstone in King and Queen County, reads, quote, Here lieth interred the body of John Lewis, born of Monmouthshire, died the 21st of August, 1657, aged 63 years. The anagram of his name, I show no ill. Along with the text, it bore the Lewis coat of arms. And if Welsh genealogy and coats of arms appeals to you, I've linked a great post by Richard Gwynnallen, uh, for you to check out in the show notes along with every other source. So less than three years in Virginia, our eldest Lewis died and it was up to his sons and William to carry on the name. So that's the Lewis aside, but what about the Merryweathers? The Merryweathers traced themselves back to a time when they spelled their name like Spanish officials did when discussing plans to stop the Lewis and Clark expedition from ascending the Missouri. John Merryweather, that's M-E-R-Y, was the rector of the Stratton St. Michael Parish in Norfolk, England. He sailed to Virginia to join his eldest son, Nicholas, who had already sailed to Jamestown, possibly with his little brother, Francis, 10 years his junior. His other children, John and Anne, remained behind in England. He had fallen on hard times. He was in a debtor's prison in London in 1639 before he was paroled. He lost his job around 1642, and in 1646, he was in the Fleet Prison which would burn down 20 years later in the Great London Fire of 1666, only to unfortunately be rebuilt. Economic constraints, the execution of King Charles I and the Civil War, coupled with the loss of his wife, Joan, pushed him to the New World. It appears, however, that John wouldn't set foot on Virginia soil as he died on the voyage over. If John had made it, however, he would find his son Nicholas debating on the purchase of the Island House, an 80-acre plot planted and seeded before 1619 owned by Elizabeth 
and Nathaniel Bacon. That's Nathaniel Bacon the Elder, the uncle and namesake of the future rebel, Nathaniel Bacon. Elizabeth was the daughter of Richard Kingsmill, one of the first members of the Virginia Company that settled Jamestown, along with names you might recognize if you're from Virginia, William Fairfax, William Claiborne, John Jefferson, William Spence, Richard Staples, and Richard Brewster. There's no direct record of his arrival in Jamestown, but he was a landholder in Northern Neck and Surrey counties and clerk at the Quarter Court and Governor's Council in the Jamestown Colony in the 1650s. He purchased Island House in 1661 and built a tobacco barn. There is debate about his wife, though it's generally assumed to be Elizabeth Woodhouse. Either way, Nicholas had multiple children, Elizabeth, Nicholas Jr., David Francis, who would inherit the Island House when Nicholas died in 1678 and became one of the largest landholders and enslavers in Essex County. Also, there's Jane, Thomas, and William. As Nicholas continued to work Island House along with enslaved and indentured men and women, Major William Lewis passed away in possession of a tract of land known as, I'm probably going to get this wrong, Chenikins. William had bought the land on the southwest side of the York River from a Captain John West in 1658, and those 2,600 acres passed into John Lewis Jr.'s hand by 1667. In the decade after William and his father's death, he and his brother Edmund had expanded the original grant and acquired many, many acres in Gloucester and New Kent counties as the colony slowly expanded away from the rivers and the bay. John Jr. was living here at the time of Bacon's Rebellion in 1676. John himself would later serve in the New Kent County Militia. During the uprising, Lewis suffered deprivations from Bacon's men as they ransacked farms and villages. The historiography of Bacon's Rebellion is long and will be discussed in future supplementals. It was either seen as the first stirrings of the future spirit of 76, the first independence movement. Bacon's constituency, as it were, was made up of all classes as well as indentured servants of all races, which terrified the wealthy elite. Or it was a squabble between, quote, two stubborn, selfish leaders, those being Bacon and colonial governor William Berkshire, in a far-flung colony that culminated in a mob hell-bent on violence against Native Americans. Regardless, the world John Lewis's children and grandchildren would live in wouldn't be the same. They'd see a future Virginia that'd be more supervised, more hierarchical, and dominated by the families that came to Virginia in the 1650s, your Washingtons, Lees, Randolphs, your Lewises, less tolerance of Native peoples, and more reliant on enslaved labor. As Edmund Morgan wrote in American Slavery, American Freedom, quote, resentment of an alien race might be more powerful than resentment of an upper class. Virginians did not immediately grasp it. It would sink in as time went on, end quote. James Douglas Rice concurs, quote, at the turn of the century, white Virginians were increasingly united by white populism, or the binding together of rich and poor whites through a sense of what they considered their common racial virtue and their common opposition to the interests of Indians and enslaved Africans. Thus, Bacon's Rebellion was, as one writer put it, a critical element in the origin of the Old South, end quote. John Jr. probably couldn't have foreseen these changes the day that he heard the news that Bacon had died of dysentery, right next door, no less, on Major Thomas Payett's farm. John Jr. and Isabella would have many children, most mysteriously and poorly sourced in the historical record. For us, we have another John, John the Counselor Lewis, born in 1669. When his father died in 1689, he inherited Chimikins and would end up marrying his first cousin, Elizabeth Isabel Warner, daughter of Augustine Warner II and Mildred Reed in 1692. John became a vestryman at St. Peter's Parish in New Kent County in 1695, serving until he's noted as, quote, lately departed the country in March of 1702. Where exactly did he go? When Elizabeth's brother Robert died, the family homestead, Warner Hall, located north of today's Newport News between the York and Rappahannock Rivers, went to Elizabeth and thus to John. 
After they moved, John's mother, Isabella, died and is buried near John's grandfather, and he was appointed to His Majesty's Council, hence the nickname, where he'd serve until his death. He's considered one of the wealthiest Virginians of his era. Patricia Zontine notes, quote, These families, Lewis, Reed, Warner, were not of yeoman stock. The great majority of Virginia's upper elite came from families in the upper ranks of English society. Of the 152 Virginians who held top offices, including Secretary of the Colony, member of the King's Council, in the late 17th and early 18th century, at least 16 were connected to aristocratic families, and 101 were the sons of baronets, knights, and rural gentry. The gentry families' names included Bathurst, Carter, Peachy, Randolph, Reed, Warner, Woodhouse, all names that appear in Meriwether and Lewis family lineage, end quote. The post-Bacon world solidified around the Lewises and their kind. As slave labor camps spread and grew larger and larger and profits soared, families mirrored monarchical structures with intermarriages and alliances to create county governances that resembled European duchies. Elizabeth died in 1720. Her tombstone can be seen today at Warner Cemetery, where it notes that she was the mother of 14 children, although only eight seem to have definitive historical documentation. Another John, this time a colonel, who would inherit Warner Hall, passing it on to his son, Fielding Lewis, who we'll meet later. Colonel Charles, also of the council. Mildred, Robert, the first Lewis to be born at Warner Hall. Catherine and Elizabeth, twins who died shortly after their birth, as well as Elizabeth and Isabella. In the insulated world of the Virginia oligarchies, it's a wonder if Nicholas Merriweather Jr., born 1667 and a child during Bacon's Rebellion, ever met John Counselor Lewis when he was a vestryman at St. Peter's Parish, or if Nicholas was a vestryman himself along with John. He married Elizabeth Crawford, and they had multiple children, including William, David, Mary, Anne, Sarah, Nicholas III, who would die a year after marrying Mildred Thornton, who would then go on to marry Thomas Walker, Elizabeth, and Jane. Most of the kids were grown when Nicholas and Elizabeth moved west to Goochland, now Albemarle County, in 1738, where he established the farm, a 1,020-acre slave labor camp between Moore and Meadows Creek, on the over 17,000 acres he received from the royal governor and King's Council of Virginia, where John the Counselor sat. That, of course, is one way to do business. Famously, Thomas Jefferson's father, Peter, bought the land for their first home where Thomas was born at Shadwell, quote, for and in consideration of Henry Weatherburn's biggest bowl of Eric Punch, to be delivered to him at and before the unsealing and delivery of these presents the receipt, whereof the said William Randolph doth hereby acknowledge. It's no coincidence that John's son, Colonel Robert Lewis, who married Nicholas's younger daughter, Jane, would join the Merriweathers West. The Lewises and Merriweathers now had roles in the spread of America's first families out of the Tidewater and into the Piedmont. And just like Robert's father, Nicholas became one of the largest landholders in Virginia. Out of the estate came locations familiar with Merriweather Lewis, either in person or in tales. Turkey Hill, Music Hall, Cloverfields, Castle Hill, where Mildred and Thomas Walker lived, or Belvoir, to name a few. Nicholas's will was one of the longest in Virginia history and was witnessed by Peter Jefferson. In the will executed upon his death in 1744, he left my loving wife, Elizabeth Merriweather, 100 pounds sterling, livestock, household goods, and 14 enslaved people, who would be forcibly split up and scattered to grandsons and daughters after her death nearly a decade later in 1762. Nicholas, and Elizabeth's second son, David, was born circa 1690. He married Anne Holmes, about whom little is known. The couple had multiple children, Thomas, born in New Kent, Virginia in 1735, who married Elizabeth Thornton of Snow Creek in Spotsylvania County. David, called Sailor David, who would die at sea aboard the York in 1772. Colonel Nicholas, who we'll talk more about in a moment. Anne, 
There appears to be an Anne without an E, born as their first child who more than likely passed away in infancy and likely a tribute to the firstborn. But this is Anne with an E. Sarah, Francis, James, and rounding it out, William. David would continue expanding upon the generational wealth of his family, and he died on Christmas Day, 1745, almost two months after his father. Anne would die in 1736. Any inheritance from his father likely went to David's children. As Nicholas and David passed away, Robert Lewis earned the label of Belvoir. He could look back on the decision to deed his Gloucester land to his first son, another John this time noted as of Halifax, and take land grants totaling 21,000 in the end, including 6,500 acres on Ivy Creek, as a success. His distinction was secured as a new member of the House of Burgesses and later county lieutenant for what was Louisa County. Undoubtedly, he kept in touch with the Merryweathers and may have assisted David's oldest son and Nicholas's grandson, Thomas, with his inheritance of Clover Fields after 1745. Mentioned before, he was married to Elizabeth Thornton in 1735, and the couple had many children together, including Colonel Nicholas Hunter Merriweather, Dr. Francis, David Daniel, Mary from the start of the episode, Elizabeth, Sarah, Charles, Thomas, William, Anne, Lucy, that's Merriweather's mother, probably born at Cloverfields in 1752. There was also Mildred, Thomas Douglas, and Jane. Robert and Jane no doubt spent time with the family. Their own children, those would be John, Mary, Jane, Anne, Nicholas, Charles, Mildred, Lieutenant William, that would be Merriweather Lewis's father, born circa 1735, also Colonel Robert Lewis of Granville, and Sarah. They were no doubt familiar with their cousins. So when Thomas died in June 1756, Robert and Jane were there for Elizabeth. And when Jane died in September of 1757, Elizabeth was there for Robert. Four years later, Robert would marry Elizabeth Thornton. Now, I know I threw a lot of names out there, including a ton of Johns and Nicholases and Anns and Janes. So we'll circle back to our present where we just left off. Meriwether Lewis's mother, Lucy, was born in 1752. His father, William, roughly 14 years her senior. After individual losses, Lucy's mother, Elizabeth, married William's father, Robert, in 1761. Lucy was nine years old. William was 23. For four years, Elizabeth was Lucy's mother and William's stepmother. Robert was William's father and Lucy's stepfather. Now, of course, Lucy and William were step-siblings, though to modern ears, it's probably the age gap that catches one more than the marital practices in a world very different from our own. Robert died in 1765. In 1768 or 69, Lucy, by now 16 or 17, married William, at best in his mid-30s. They'd welcome a daughter, another Jane, into their lives in 1770. Lucinda would be born in 1772, although she would die as an infant. And Meriwether Lewis would be born on August 18, 1774. One can imagine Elizabeth holding the baby boy, caring for him like a grandmother would. She wouldn't have long with him, however, as she would die that fall in October of 1774. 